Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 40, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. Yes, I have a cold. You can probably hear it in the first 10 seconds of me talking. But I believe that I'm going to make it through all the way to the end of this podcast without blowing stuff out of my nose on the microphone. That's what I believe. Just as a reminder, I'm the author of The God Who Fights For You, released earlier this year, Spiritual Grit, released last year, The Jesus-Centered Life, released several years ago. I'm just tracking back through my, <laughs> through my tree rings here. And I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. And those are all sort of my children. But I'm also a godfather. Those of you who don't know this, I'm the godfather of our Jesus-Centered Planner. Our Jesus Center planner is is a uh, eight and a half by eleven size, nicely bound planner. If you have a Jesus Center Bible, it has the same kind of cover on it, same kind of logo, but it's a yearly planner with special features that will draw you into a closer orbit around Jesus throughout the year. It's now in its third year, and it's sold out the previous two years, like faster than we expected. It just sold out, so I'm giving all of you a heads up. If you're interested in getting a daily planner that will sort of surround your day with little prompts that draw you back to Jesus, jump on this now. There'll be a link on our podcast page, which is at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and you'll be looking for Season 4, Episode 40. And this year's version has all new devotion prompts, it has updated Bible readings, and it has a weekly calendar that now will start on Sunday instead of Monday. So few differences from the past two years, but if you are interested in that, um, you are among the first to hear about it, so jump on there and get one. Today is our sixth episode in a series recalling the beeline practices. The beeline practices, I know that's a funny term for those of you who are just listening to uh, an episode in this series for the first time, but it comes from Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian-era preacher, who whenever he gave a sermon, he always said Wherever I start, doesn't matter what the topic is, I'm always going to end up at Jesus. And that's what he called making a beeline to Jesus. And in the Jesus-centered life, the last two-thirds of that book are filled up with 17 or 18 beeline practices, things we can do in our everyday life that draw us into closer orbit with Jesus. And when that happens, when we get closer to him, he transforms us. That's what happens when we get close to Jesus. He sets us free because that's what he does. So in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of noticing what Jesus does and doesn't do. Uh, another way of saying this is the way, the way I refer to this in my head is Jesus did, Jesus didn't. The, uh, this is the beeline practice we're going to uh, explore today. Now, this one is, it, it really gets at a broader theme that's embedded in all of the beeline practices. And it basically is, is, means replacing our assumptions about Jesus with the truth about him. And this is a key thing. We can't have a relationship with a made-up person. I know some of you have tried. You have an imaginary friend, but you can't have a really deep relationship with that imaginary friend. And when we don't really understand or appreciate or describe Jesus as he really is, we're really having a 
a relationship with a made up person and that won't lead to intimacy. So when we do that, we end up relating to his principles, not his person. The bottom line is he sacrificed his life to invite us back into relationship with him. And he doesn't want us relating simply with the ideas he stands for. He wants us to relate to him. So the way we come to love someone is, if you think about this, the way we come to love someone is simply by noticing what they do and don't do. Now that sounds too simplistic, but we're going to dive into that today. So today the Becky Nader is unable to join me. So I recruited the Lucy Nader instead. That doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way the Becky Nader is. And the Lucy Nader is my daughter, Lucy, and she's shaking her head right now. We're doing this on a video conference call. She's shaking her head. Apparently, she doesn't like being called the Lucy Nader. No, she I is, do not. <laughs> she, is, she is my oldest daughter. She's a junior in college. She's one of the most interesting, challenging people I know. And she's not afraid to shake her head at me in the middle <laughs> of a podcast. So, Lucy, you're sitting in, your, in the room in your house at college where did you just come from before you popped onto the podcast here? Yeah, so I'm um, at my house in college. I go to Colorado State University um, in Fort Collins. And I, I just came from 18th century fiction class. So, Oh, give us a nugget from 18th century oh, fiction. Oh, no. Lots of objectified women. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can't imagine a more fun afternoon than than spending time talking about how women are objectified. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that's one of the main things we talk about. But yeah, apparently, it, apparently, it's happened quite a lot throughout history. Is that correct? Yes, yes, it has. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe right now on your college campus, it's happening too, right? Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, and and speaking of that, like big topics on college campuses. I wanted to ask you that, that, that I think this will be an interesting way to get into this. So I know that always a big topic on college campuses is relationships. What, you know, what guys look for in girls and what girls look for in guys. And in your circle of friends, think about this, in your circle of friends, what sorts of guy characteristics are attractive and which ones are not? Let's hear your list amongst your circle of friends. I'm giving you a little bit of an out here so you don't have to list just your own personal list. Just in case somebody that actually, you know, knows is, me would hear And listening to this, yeah. So it's, yeah. you're representing, air quotes, your circle of friends right now. So I do, I live in a house of all girls. There's four of us. So um, the topic of boys comes up a lot. And I think for us, one of the biggest things that we're looking for in a guy is someone that can communicate. So uh, communication is huge. So like having a guy that can like actually say like, oh, I'm interested in you or this is, this is who I am or is able to have a conversation with them is huge. Or ask you questions. I hear you talking about that a lot. Asking me questions is huge. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that though? What, why is that a characteristic? I think my roommates are listening through the door and laughing right now. So this is great. <laughs> I think asking questions is so huge because it's communicating that they're other focused and that they care about me as a person and um, are able to pursue like who I am and are not just focused on themselves the whole time. And, and that's how I think relationships are formed is like when you can have that mutual understanding of each other and conversation isn't just one-sided. So what are some characteristics that, you know, in your circle of friends, 
really are not attractive to you about guys. I'm sure you've seen plenty of examples of this. Yeah, I think one is being kind of the opposite of what I just said, like very self-centered. So when a guy is very focused on themselves, not really interested in the girl at all, um, when I, I think when the girl feels like they're just kind of like a like sport for the guys, it's all about the chase. Yeah. They don't feel like they're actually important. Um, that's big. Another big thing is they really hate it when guys like obviously like lie to them or are not giving them the full picture or are manipulative. So like saying one thing to try to get a certain, I don't know, response from us, I guess. You've listed before to me some things that I might call gentlemanly behavior. Yes. Oh my gosh. How did I forget? Okay. Yes. So, and this is more probably speaking to me and my circle of friends. So I can't speak for the larger CSU population, I guess. But um, the idea of like chivalry is really at least for me, is a big deal. So when guys are just disrespectful to girls, that is one of the things I will get the most frustrated about is when guys are disrespectful um, or not treating the women in their lives well. That even goes down to those sort of simple practices like opening doors and things like that though, right? Yes, which I've heard some girls say things like, don't open the door for me, like I'm fully capable. But there's something about like that uh, practice of like opening a door that's just to me communicates, I see you, I want to serve you, I appreciate who you are, and therefore I'm going to open the door for you. Yeah, so uh, as we talk about these things that are, are characteristics that, that girls are looking for in guys and, and characteristics that really uh, uh, are repugnant to them in some ways, how do you discern whether or not a guy has these characteristics? I mean, how do you know that these things are true. So you talked about communication. Mm -hmm. uh, That's the first thing you mentioned. How do you know whether a guy has the kind of communication skills you're looking for or not? How do you discern that? Well, actually, I think, at least for me, I often will look at, well, how are they relating to other women in their lives, like their mom or their friend or their sister? Because sometimes guys can put on a really good, like, facade around somebody especially if they like are interested in them so they can maybe ask more questions than they normally would or present a different side of them and so for me the discerning comes from okay yeah he's treating me in this way but how is he talking about his mom or how is he and that's not you know there's a lot of leniency I don't feel like I'm saying things and people are gonna get really angry at me for like (laughs) how I'm presenting things but just um looking at we have we have no stalkers in our wide listening audience (laughs) I just there's a lot of opinions on this This is my opinion but uh, looking at how do they relate to everyone how do they treat everyone regardless of who they are I think is a big key for me and like with you know asking questions I think is a way to tell are they focused on themselves or are they focused on others or are they, you know, are they wanting a conversation or are they just, you know, kind of wanting, I don't know, to feel good about themselves? Yeah. And what, and what you're describing really, if you boil it down is when you pay attention to what people say or don't say or do or don't do, you get a picture, kind of a portal into their heart. You have to pay attention though. Uh, if you're paying attention, you, you get sort of a sense of the person's heart, and you're describing the sort of heart that captures a girl, and the portal that you're using to do that is you're observing what that person, what that guy is 
saying or not saying, doing or not doing. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're going to explore here with Jesus. We do the same thing with him. If we slow down and pay attention to the same things that he does, his characteristics, we get this uh, direct portal down into the core of his heart. Let's compare some popular conceptions of Jesus. What I mean by that is kind of the ways people generally think about him with things he actually said and did. So I, th I think this will be an interesting on-ramp into exploring some things in scripture about this. So, so here's another question for you. Okay. How, how do college students who are you know, basically still uh, in the process of owning their faith, what do they think about Jesus? What do they seem to think about Jesus, I guess is another way of saying it, both from sort of the insiders, people who are in Christian community that you have relationships with, and then maybe the outsiders, people like in your classes that really want nothing to do with Jesus or Christians or faith. What are some of the ways that you perceive that they think about Jesus? like commonly think about him? One thing that has been interesting since coming to college has been um, just to to hear that other perspective of how other people that um, aren't Christians um, see Christians and see Jesus. Um, and I would say on my campus, best they see him as a moral guideline, but at worst they see him as the quintessential reprimanding figure so, and I would say most people see him or see Christianity as a whole as with a very negative connotation, with a very, they are judgmental, they're telling me I'm going to hell, and I want nothing to do with Christians that have, throughout history, marginalized and persecuted and killed so many other people in the name of Jesus. I remember you told me about, uh, a while back, you told me about a story when you were in class and the professor was obviously sort of oppositional to mm -hmm. Christians and Christianity. And a couple of girls you were sitting by were having a conversation as you were walking out of class that kind of offensive, considering that you were standing right there. Can yeah. you relate that again? It was in an honors seminar where we were, it's all discussion-based. And so we were talking about Christianity and another guy in my class who was a Christian mentioned that on like today, sometimes Christians are actually, like they are not heard or are like, discriminated against in one sense because at least on the campus of CSU um, we're seen as kind of being like not thinking in our faith or we're seen as using faith as a crutch and so lots of times if I say I'm a Christian I feel like there's a lot of negative connotation associated with that and so the girls walking out of class were very angry um, because they were like what Christians are the majority they are the privileged all of this stuff they have no right to be saying this. And so I just ended up having a conversation with them about, yes, I'm not at all saying that we are looped in with some of these other people groups that have been um, discriminated against for generations. But that doesn't mean that being a Christian today comes with a lot of, at least for me, I have a lot of negative words said about Christianity in front of me, and they're generally seen in a very um, negative light. Um, we have these people on our campus that go out into our plaza, which is kind of like our free speech area on campus, and they bring these huge crosses and they shout scripture and they say all kinds of things um, like you're going to hell and um, repent sinners or else you'll never be in God's favor and all this stuff, which actually is not biblically accurate. Um, but a lot of 
talking about revelation and there's a huge pushback to that people hate them people stand and yell back at them and i think it's because um it's not biblical but that's what their version of christianity is like that's how people see us as christians it's staying on the corner telling people repent or you're going to hell does this antagonism extend also to jesus himself or do people basically feel like he's benign or is he also is are also antagonistic feelings toward Jesus himself? I would say most see Christianity as a as a negative and they see Jesus as a nothing almost. Or he's a good guy or he, you know, he taught some good moral things, but he's obviously not speaking the truth. Yeah. So uh, let's move. Uh, there, there's some obvious ways that you hear Jesus described or Christians described at school, but within your Christian community connections, do you sometimes hear people relating to Jesus or um, kind of framing the relationship with Jesus or even describing Jesus in ways that make you kind of squirm? Yes. <laughs> yes. I often will hear, first of all, like, oh, Jesus is just a nice guy, which, you know, like, oh, he's just, you know, he's, he's a really he's kind of describing how you describe like a teddy bear or something, just like very not like fears are strong, but just this, oh, he's like a really like sweet guy. Kind of, or like he's like you know he's a good guy nice guy the other way that i hear which i always like cringe is they take this uh jesus as um like okay i have to pick the right decision that jesus wants for me or else like i you know i'm out of god's path i need to do this and this and this and pray this amount of time so i get the right answer and i'm really hoping that i hear him right so i make sure that i'm doing exactly what he wants me to do and what you're really describing there is a person who's very exacting very anal yeah very unforgiving even in like some christian like settings where people are speaking there's very much of a focus on like doing x y and z in order to be a better Christian? I don't know. It's it's this weird feeling that I, I get frustrated with because I think, because I grew up in the house I did, where we talk all the time about how that's not how the, a relationship works. <laughs> it's not a checklist. So when I go and hear a, you know, it's a talk or something and people are describing the relationship like a checklist or they finish their sermon with, here's four things you can do to really, you know, basically be a better Christian. And it just makes me like, no, no, no. That is just putting more burdens on people and making them view their relationship with Jesus more as a checklist. And subsequently, it's bringing more shame because no one can live up to those standards. So there's shame and hiddenness that comes along with that. And there's also another another metaphor you could use for that is sort of a vending machine theology that you put in the right number of coins and you should be getting blank back out of the vending machine. We would never describe what we're doing in that way, but that's functionally what we're doing. I just wonder if you could take a guess here. Why do people, and even these circumstances you're talking about now, why do people get Jesus so wrong? I think because Jesus is such a critical figure, not just, you know, everyone knows who Jesus is. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus, at least in America, people know the name Jesus. It's not, um, and so I think, and many people grew up in the church, and so they've heard Jesus' name for forever. And I think what comes with that is this false, this false belief that you totally get Jesus. So there's no reason to go and read the gospels because, oh, I heard that in Sunday school. Those, that's the elementary part of Christianity. I'm going to move on to, you know, the more intense books of the Bible or something. And so um, we are left with this elementary vision of who Jesus is because we've never gone past our Sunday school class depiction of him. 
And we think that about sums up who he is. And so there doesn't seem like there's any reason to go any farther or to to delve into anything more because we have this false sense of security over our understanding of who Jesus is. Oh, I think you nailed it. I think that's really, really true. It's on a widespread basis, particularly, of course, for people who are raised in the church. Right. People who come to him out who didn't grow up in the church don't really have that baggage in that sense. They don't have that kind of um, elementary school vision of him. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think in the wider culture, you've already mentioned some of this. Um, if you... If, if you take a, a kind of a snapshot in the wider culture, people see Jesus as a good teacher, yeah. as a spiritual leader, and you've already mentioned this too, a really good person. These are the categories that people describe Jesus in, a good teacher, spiritual leader, really good person. They also have some beliefs about what they think he does. Like for instance, that he's always nonviolent. Um, that Jesus is opposed to violence. So they have that belief about him. They believe that he's very compromising, like he's non-confrontive and he'll compromise. And they, they think of him as very accommodating to whatever, whatever I've got going on, he's going to accommodate me because I'm basically a good person. So Jesus must also think I'm a good person. So he's very accommodating. So if you remember, Jesus asked his own disciples, what the people thought about him in Matthew 16. And his disciples said, I just wish, this is one of those moments that when we're with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven, if he has the ability to DVR these stories <laughs> so we can go back and be part of them, I would love to be sitting there when this happens. Because Jesus asks them, what do all those people say about me? I mean, how do they describe me? And I just imagine there being this kind of awkward pause, like, the shifting of feet in the dust, like, uh, do we, do we tell him? And so one of them speaks up and says, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So they're basically saying, Jesus, they think you're a prophet, just another one in a long string of prophets who are pointing the Messiah. You're someone who's pointing to God, Jesus. That's what the people think, but you aren't God. And so then he asks them who they think he is even more awkward. And that's, of course, when Peter says, stands up and just, I love this moment. I just picture him with fire in his eyes, because that's what Peter usually had, is fire in his eyes, saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the first person to publicly proclaim that. So Peter is clearly saying, no, you're not a prophet, Jesus. You're not just a prophet. You're the Messiah. Yeah. You're the son of God. What an electric moment. So we're all the time asking this question, who do we say Jesus is? And this uh, beeline practice of studying what Jesus does and doesn't do helps us to discern the truth about him and to get to the core of his heart. So I, I thought it'd be interesting just to pause just for a second and explore our own experience of Jesus over the years and how that has changed and expanded. Um, from the kind of the little box that he occupied when we were little kids. Uh, a few things that I can think of right off the top of my head are um, that have changed in my understanding of who Jesus is. Over the years, I've realized Jesus is after intimacy. This is his primary pursuit with us. And right. that that's new for me. I, I did not have that understanding of him when I was young. But as I've gotten closer to him and I've asked what is Jesus saying and not saying? What is he doing and not doing more and more? 
what surfaces is, boy, he really wants an intimate relationship. Uh, another thing that I think has changed for me is that uh, I think when I was young, I thought, like everyone does, Jesus is basically kind, the kind, tender teddy bear that you described before, Lucy. Mm-hmm. But I've now experienced him as much more ferocious. Yeah. His behavior is fierce very often. So there's a couple of things that I think have changed in my box that I put around Jesus. Anything you can think of in your own life that has changed over the course of time that he's broken out of one of your boxes? I, I think one of the metaphors that you did actually um, has impacted me the most is your analogy of um, the dark alley um, and how Jesus is often talked about as um, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, thank you. I was going to say Robinson. I was like, that's not it. Mr. Rogers, um, who's like this nice guy on TV, you know. And but if you're you're in a dark alley and some menacing person is coming up the other way, walking towards you, and you have one person that you can wish into that situation with you, there's no way in heck that you're gonna invite Mr. Rogers to join you. Like, <laughs> no one would do that in their right mind. You're gonna you're gonna invite some Navy SEAL, <laughs> exactly, someone who is ferocious and intimidating and knows what they're doing and and is a little scary um, to defend you. And and this metaphor of well, you know, in our lives we go through some dark alleys, you know, this, this life is hard. And, and we, as, as people go through really dark alleys and therefore we need a God that is not Mr. Rogers esque. We need a God that is Navy SEAL esque who walk into those. And, and, and you're illustrating something I said earlier too, that, that if we think of Jesus as Mr. Rogers, he's a made up Jesus at that point. And what it does is it undermines our ability to be in relationship with him in the midst of our darkness, because we're not going to reach out to him. And what's tragic about that is that he's ferocious and he's, and he's able to walk with us into those dark places, but we won't reach out to him. He's walked in those dark places before. So a, a character, you know, I think a lot of times I hear Christians when they're struggling with something, say things kind of like, God doesn't want to be in that, that it's too messy. And then going from that to realizing, no, actually like there is nothing that is too dark or too messy for God to step into. Actually, he normally likes those moments because that's when we're vulnerable enough and ready enough to hear him. So if you're going with the metaphor of Mr. Rogers and a Navy SEAL, Navy SEAL has experienced a lot of hard stuff in his life. And that's why him meeting you in the dark alley is not a big deal for him. He's already been there. He's already done way greater things than that. Not intimidated by that. Yeah, I love that. And I think it was in The God Who Fights For You that I I wrote this little scenario. I was trying to get at what you're saying in a deeper, more emotional way. So I just painted this picture of a person. um, You sometimes hear about kids who are uh, kidnapped and thrown in the bottom of an outhouse and left there to die. This has happened I mean, sporadically. I think mom told Emma that on the first time we went camping, and Emma never <laughs> has seen a porta potty yeah. since. <laughs> em- Emma is Lucy's little sister, and she's deathly afraid of porta potties. <laughs> I think it's because of that story. I yeah. really. Yeah. Well, this has happened at times when, uh, you know, off and on where somebody does this with a small child. And so I painted this picture of you're, you've been thrown in the bottom of an outhouse, and you're all alone left to die in the worst place you can possibly imagine. And in the middle of that darkness, you hear somebody say, I'm here. I'm right here. 
and you're startled and you go, who's here? And Jesus speaks up and says, it's me. I want to be with you here. And you say, what are you doing down here? And he says, this is pretty much where I live. Mm. Um, I was trying to get at something that is fleshes out what you're saying, Lucy, that, that yeah. he not only is not afraid of these places, he gravitates to them. He lives there. So those are some interesting things that, that start to expand the box that we have around him. Um, I thought it would be interesting to go over something that I, um, I explore in the book. Um, what I did was I Googled the words Jesus healed, or I, I actually, I think I went on Bible Gateway. That's right. I went on Bible Gateway, which is a great resource, by the way. And I just plugged in Jesus healed into the search box on Bible Gateway. And it popped up a bunch of examples of when Jesus healed people. So I thought it would be interesting for you and I, Lucy, to, I'm just going to read through these examples, these quick examples of Jesus healing someone. And then I want you to pay attention to what Jesus does and doesn't do in these ex quick examples and see if you can figure out, you know, what pops to the surface for you. So here we go from Matthew 9, 22. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. From Matthew 12, 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. From Matthew 15, 28, then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Mark 1, 34, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. From Luke 9, 42, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. From John 5, 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Okay, so there's a, so a little shotgun blast of little mm -hmm. stories of Jesus healing people. First, mm -hmm. what stuck out to you about what Jesus did? Well, in most of them, he talks about their faith healing them. Oh, stop right there. Stop right there. That is a fascinating observation. We think of Jesus healing them, but what Jesus actually says is your faith has healed you or yeah. your something about what they have done sort of sets in motion something he does, right? Right. And I think, and even with the demon possessions, um, there's just this like blanket statement of healing them might be the, the outward part of it, like healing, you know, they're not blind anymore or they're they're able to walk, um, but he's never just healing uh, the outside of them. He is very focused on what is happening on the inside as well. Let's go back just for a second um, and step back and say, so based on those observations, what do we know about Jesus for sure? That's the Oprah question. What do we know about Jesus for sure based on that? Um, and that with the first one, what we know is that, and I just love this about Jesus, when we say, you probably hear people say this all the time, when somebody is complimented, for instance, they'll say, oh, it was all God. That was all God. That wasn't me. But that's not true. It's not true based on how Jesus behaves. Jesus doesn't want that. 
He doesn't want it to be all on him. He's never he's never been the domineering. I'm going to take this over and and just manhandle this. Right. He's he wants always invited us into into the relationship. Right. He wants us. He wants to do things together. That together yeah. is always his mission. Together, together, together. So when you see him say your faith has healed you, he's really saying something you contributed matters in this. And I want what you contribute to matter. So there's something we know about him just kind of slowing down, paying attention to what he did. The second thing, uh, remind me again of the second thing you said, because, you know, I have, a, I have a cold. I can barely think right now. Well, the second thing is he was focused on um, the internal as well as the external. Oh, yeah, that's good. So what do you know about him just based on that? Um, that he cares deeply for more than um, – what surface level wrong with us? <laughs> yeah. He is going to get at the heart of who we are and of, of whatever needs to be healed. And I think um, that is powerful because I think for me, it's like, okay, Jesus, you can heal, you know, this, this thing in my life. But um, he's, he wants to heal every part of me. He wants to get at the root. Um, and I think he, he's care, he cares about me as more than just you know my physical needs he cares about me in such a more deep way yeah is there anything else that popped out to you that he did in these he spoke with kindness towards them which i i just think um there's a level of you know christians are always oh they're judgmental all this kind of stuff but you see how jesus relates to people that are hurting it is done with grace and gentleness for the most part, which is interesting because things like, like leprosy in the day were believed to be, um, you got leprosy because your family had sinned or there was, there was something wrong with you. And so they were treated as such as, as people that had something wrong with them or they'd sinned or their family had sinned. There was something, there was some sin that had created this. So for him to treat them in such a radically different way was a big deal. And I think today now we do treat people that are ill with kindness, but in that day, like it was different and he yeah. kind of flipped that. Yeah. I love what you're, you're pointing out there too, that he's once again, trying to uh, flip their narrative that they have gotten used to being sort of marginalized and unseen and they have really no value. So for him to treat them with tenderness elevates their humanity at the right. same time. So there's something we know about him that he's interested in elevating our humanity. There's something that that's sort of, I think is kind of shocking that shows up in these little vignettes that's hard to see, um, but it kind of sticks out to me. Here's an example in one of the last ones I read from John five thirteen. The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Yeah. And think about this, what Jesus did not do in any of these circumstances was he did not do what we would surely do, which is, well, do you believe with your heart and speak with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Because if you do, then, then he can heal you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't right. even ask them to know who he is right. before he heals them. There's no contingencies. There's nothing attached to him healing there's no agenda. I'll heal you if you do this. Right. And we tend to think 
that it's a kind of a quid pro quo, which is a phrase that's once again resurfaced into our cultural vernacular. Quid pro quo means I do this for you and you do this for me. And Jesus does not behave like that. He doesn't say, first, you got to slap me a little skin before I'll do I'll do something for you. First, I have to know that you're going to follow me if I do this. Um, He heals this guy and the guy doesn't even know who he is because Jesus slips away before he can even find out who he is. Right. Why? Why would Jesus not want to make sure the guy knows who he is? That's a good question. Well, I think though, so if I was in the situation and I was able to heal people, I would, I think it's human nature in a lot of ways to be like, oh, look at what I just did. Or to kind of, uh, you want to promote yourself. But I think that comes from a place of insecurity where you need to prove yourself or you need others to validate that you're worth something or, or to speak encouragement into you. But for Jesus, he's completely secure in who he is. So he has no need to kind of be self-righteous and proclaim, oh, look, can everyone see what I just did? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that, I think that's a great explanation. And, and uh, when we look at, we start to see Jesus as he really is by studying what he does and doesn't do, then as, as we sink and immerse ourselves into his personality in this, it starts to infect us too. And we start to love people with no strings attached. We stop putting out a prerequisite for people before we will offer them whatever it is we have to give. We start practicing hospitality even when we're not sure they're going to reciprocate. We start acting like Jesus uh, the closer we get to these things. And the way that we do that is by discovering what he does do and what he didn't do and kind of lingering there a little bit, chewing on it like we're doing right now. Because then it starts to infect your heart. You start to get magnetically drawn to a heart like that. And it becomes his standards become your standards. So kind of off of that, going back to what I was saying about people that stand in the plaza of my school and kind of shout, you know, hellfire kind of statements to people. um, What always gets me the most angry is I want to go up to them and say, you know, the people that Jesus was the harshest with in the Bible were not the quote-unquote sinners and the the people that are obviously far from God. It was the Pharisees who believed they were in good standing with God. I just want to be like, actually, Jesus was the most compassionate and gentle with the lowliest people. And, you know, with the people that you're talking to these students, like, and saying, oh my gosh, like, because you're doing, you're smoking, you're obviously not with Jesus. Like, no, actually, the people that Jesus was the most gentle with were the most broken. And often, like, the ones that were the farthest from religion. Yeah. Changing that focus is like, okay, so actually, like, my generosity, my gentleness, my kindness needs to be extended even further to people who feel like Christians should be the one judging them. It should be the opposite. You know, the, thing, the people that feel like they should be the most judged should be the ones that feel the least judged. Yeah, that's good. I love that. You know, to, to wrap up here, another, I think another way to think about this, this is sort of uh, reverse engineering this, is to think critically about the way Christians are supposed to live or supposed to believe, and then compare that to what Jesus modeled. So some people believe that 
we should extricate ourselves from the culture completely um, and keep ourselves holy. But Jesus clearly did not do that himself and never asked us to do that. So when we start to consider what Jesus did and didn't do, we can reverse engineer that into when we hear someone say that you shouldn't be um, out there in the culture like this. You should be, uh, you should retreat to a bubble and protect yourselves somehow. You, we would have to say, but there's nothing about Jesus in that because he never did that. Or things like um, uh, we have to tithe. If you're going to be a good Christian, you have to tithe. Well, th- did Jesus teach that we need to be have an exacting standard of how much we give, and it needs to be ten percent? Is that on your gross or your or or the uh, or, or the after tax income, or uh, how do you calculate that? Actually, Jesus said, "Give it all. <laughs> right. Make it think, make um, it all available." One of the examples that I've ran into just recently is um, I was talking to one of my friends who was. Um, struggling with a friendship with another person and was saying, well, Jesus would want me to just be like, really like kind to this person. And it's really, it's draining me. And it's, it's, and they're so, you know, they're whatever, they're all these different things. They're kind of mean, or they're taking advantage of them, like kind of using them. And it's like, but I, you know, as a Christian, like I need to just kind of continue to, they, they categorize loving them as just continuing to be nice to them. And I kind of pushed back against that and just said, well, you know, yes, we're called to love, but love doesn't have to be in the box of just being nice to people. Sometimes love is like hard love. Sometimes it's love looks like um, setting a boundary and saying, hey, you can't, you can't like use me in this way because that's then loving them in, in, in a way um, because you're, you're setting a boundary. You're telling them you're not going to walk all over me. Right. And, and in our last episode, if listeners have listened to the, our last episode before this, when we talked about the Pharisees being full cup people, so they think of themselves as being full up with their own righteousness. And the way that Jesus loved them was poking a hole in their plastic cup to drain that out so that they could feel the emptiness that would drive them to him. That's what love looks like. That's what it looks like with the Pharisees. And it ex- helps it to explain why Jesus interacted with them the way he did. He's not just losing his temper at them. He's loving them. He's right. trying to poke a hole in their cup. And right. that, that kind of gets at what you're saying here. That, that, and I love the example you just gave, too, that um, this practice is, is kind of, you could call it curious, inquisitive, pushing back, however you want to call it. But when somebody gives you a given, that, that this is a given in the Christian life, I'm, my hope is that the first thing that goes off in our head is, is that a given for Jesus or not? Because if it's not a given for Jesus, then they've just created um, a new law like the Pharisees were doing all right. the time. They've just created a new law to follow, and it has nothing to do with what Jesus modeled or expects of us. So that's how to reverse engineer this whole Jesus did, Jesus didn't stuff as well is to uh, uh, put a critical eye on some of the expectations that you're supposed to do as a Christian and make Jesus always the anchor point for that. Not your culture, not your tradition, just what did Jesus do and not do? Because that's the model in the end. Any last words before we close off here, Lucy? Anything, last thoughts that are lurking there? 
I will say one thing. I think we can get caught up in the Christianese culture and lose sight of that we're pursuing Jesus, not the ministry we're a part of. Yeah, we're pursuing Jesus. We're not, we're not pursuing um, our own cultural traditions. Right, and I, I've seen people in my, in like a Christian group I'm a part of, it almost feels like they are following the ministry instead of following Jesus. Like the ministry is their faith or their, yeah. their religion. And just having that distinction of those can be vessels to bring, draw us closer to Jesus. But ultimately, God is, God is it. Last thing, at my church, I absolutely love it. My pastor always says, God plus nothing is our faith. That's what, but God plus anything doesn't work, basically. Yeah. So having a mindset of God plus nothing, he is the ultimate. He's the ultimate thing that we need to be pursuing and ultimately need to be comparing against everything. And, and so there's nothing else there. In the book I wrote uh, 15 years ago, Jesus Entered Youth Ministry, the tagline is, from Jesus plus to Jesus only. That's what we're, that's what we're headed toward, to Jesus only. Well, yeah. Gang, Lucy, thanks for being on the podcast today. And thank you guys for listening. Remember, you can check out the Jesus Center Planner before they're all gone. Just go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com, season four, episode 40. Can you believe it? Episode 40. Crazy. And you'll find, you'll find a link there. Uh, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 